last week is when I crossed the bridge and began the uh, 35th year. I'm definitely very grateful to God for the opportunity that has been given to me to serve in this way at Kabwata Baptist Church. Uh, give thanks to my wife and children for the support that they have given to the various church officers over the years uh, that have come and gone and others who've stuck around a lot longer and are still with me. And of course, all of you, uh, each person plays a different role uh, in the ministry that I have been privileged to undertake at Kawata Baptist Church. I took um, a, a, a long time to ask myself, what is it that I should preach on this occasion? I, I went through uh, the messages that I have been preaching uh, for many years now, since about uh, 1999, they were in front of me as I was scrolling through, saying, what is it that I ought to handle, that I ought to speak about? And uh, finally, my, my own heart rested on this passage, <clears throat> Hebrews 12 and verse uh, 1 to 2, uh, with the title of the sermon, Finishing the Rest Well finishing the race well. <clears throat> and this is not just about myself finishing well, and I know the years in front of me are fewer than the years behind me. It can only be that way. I can't imagine myself another 34 years in front of me. Uh, yeah, that's becoming like Methuselah or something. Um, but it is about all of us, and uh, especially you, who are church members, you who are listening to me on this occasion. So instead of me spending my time this evening thinking about the whole church together collectively and saying what should we be doing, where should we be going, which I often do, I ask myself where are we coming from so that we might be grateful, where are we now, that we might discern what the Lord wants us to do now, and then also where ought we to be going so that again we set our charts according to scripture. But this time I want us to, to forget the whole and think specifically about you as an individual, you as an individual member of Kabwata Baptist Church, finishing your race well. In the last one year, we've lost at least four church members. Uh, there was uh, Mr. Michael Chelelwa, who went to be with the Lord. There was also Nelson Mumba, who died in his case very suddenly. He was getting on to transport in, on the car belt, coming to Lusaka uh, right in the middle of the night, um, was involved in a fatal car accident and consequently never arrived on this end. Instead, found himself in heaven. And then there is uh, <clears throat> two ladies. Uh, that these are COVID-related. We've been going through COVID times. Uh, Chishiva Chibuta and uh, Wupe Kaonga. And losing church members whom you've come to know and love, who've meant so much to you, not just spiritually, but also in the social circle, can be very depressing, very depressing. But I must admit <clears throat> that when I think in terms of, may I just have the water here? Vatikon, <clears throat> putting you to good use. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. When I think in terms of how these individuals have uh, 
lived for the Lord, especially the ones I've known for many years. Nelson, it was very few years. But all the others, it's been 30 years onwards that I have, I have known them. Uh, perhaps even more going into the 1980s that I have known them. And to see how it is that they have lived for the Lord, they had their ups and downs, especially in the earlier sections of their Christian lives. And then they've been going on and on and on, and in the end, finishing well. There is a, a, a joy. There is a, a sense of triumph that one feels as you are standing over the open grave and the casket is being lowered. There's a sense in which you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for enabling me as a shepherd to see your sheep graduate from this life and graduate well, graduate on a glorious note. Some of you will remember, I was just being reminded by Pastor Sivale that when I was preaching at uh, Mr. Michael Chirilwa's funeral, I was preaching about uh, the path of the righteous being like the, the first gleam of dawn that rises ever brighter until the full light of day. And again, that's what I mean by, by finishing well. And really the, the, the plea that I'm seeking to make through this message is that all of us should aim to finish well. Trying to finish well. And first of all, it is obviously dependent on the way we begin, that we must begin our Christian lives not on hearsay, not on false attempts at conversion, but that there might be real regeneration and that there might be real uh, justification by faith. And then also there is the aspect of uh, the, the path of sanctification from dawn until, as we said, the full light of day, that, that you may excel in pursuing godliness and pursuing holiness, uh, which is what this text is about, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, where the Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, and there it is, this aspect of uh, uh, perseverance, this aspect of um, running with excellence to the very end. Uh, with endurance, the rest that is said before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was said before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself also being an example of one who finished well. He finished well and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. What we have in this passage are three truths. First of all, there is the fact or the indicative. Secondly, there is the duty or the imperative. And then lastly, there is the example. And I want each one of us to just lay our hearts bare before the Lord to allow him to examine us so that we may search ourselves and where we are beginning to slacken, that we may fix those areas so that we may end well. Because you'll agree with me that starting well is important, but it's not the most important. It is the way 
everything ends that matters the most. Well, first of all, in this portion of Scripture, we have this truth that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And that great crowd of witnesses, or cloud of witnesses, is one that um, is, is actually in chapter 11. And thankfully, we have just had um, our brother, Mr. Chambela, reading that entire chapter for us. It's individuals after individuals that have walked in this life, in this life of faith. Now, I remember many years ago when I first came across the great cloud of witnesses, and I was imagining that they must be sort of standing around somewhere and looking at us. It's like in a, in a stadium when you are playing uh, soccer, football, or whatever game it might be, and you have all these witnesses in the stands who are gazing upon us. I used to think that perhaps that's what uh, the writer had in mind, that these are the individuals that are looking at us, and therefore uh, it's, 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 it ought to encourage us to do even better. Uh, I think anybody who has played big-time football will know that the difference between playing with a home crowd advantage or just playing soccer in a place where almost everybody is opposed to you and they're booing you and everything else. The, where you have so many people who are your supporters and they're cheering you on, there's a way in which your adrenaline just flows and consequently you are able to do so much more. Well, that's not quite what uh, the writer of this letter has in mind when he speaks about surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Instead, what he has in mind is what is happening in chapter 11. In other words, these are not people who are witnesses in terms of looking at us. These are individuals who are witnesses in terms of testifying of God's faithfulness, testifying of God's ability, testifying of what it means to walk by faith and seeing God proving himself in the lives of those who live like this. And you'll agree with me that once we understand the great cloud of witnesses in that way, then Hebrews chapter 11 begins to make sense. Because what Hebrews 11 is all about is individuals, one by one. We have Abel, we have Enoch, we have uh, uh, Abraham, we have Sarah, we have, we have Moses, we have so many other individuals all the way down to even Rahab the prostitute. She's also thrown in there as she did her role in terms of being faithful to the God of the Israelites, even against her own people. And in the process, the Lord also blessed her. So you, you, basically what this is saying, by being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, is that you have your Bible, and you have so many individuals from Genesis, in their case it would have been up to Malachi, but we can throw in the Gospels, we can throw in the book of, um, of Acts, we can throw in the letters of Paul and John and Peter and James and so on. We can throw all these people in and see that God proved himself faithful. And their lives testify. Their lives witness to us. In other words, brethren, we've got a serious choice to make. One is to believe what is in the movies, what is on social media, what is often screaming at us as a successful life. 
a life that is lived in sin and somehow the individuals are making it. And therefore, they are people that others are looking up to, drinking up their testimonies as though it was water. We either can do that or we can go to the scriptures, to the testimonies of those who sought to live by faith and were truly victorious. And I mean truly victorious because God's own word lists them down. We are told in verse 33 of chapter 11, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The Bible goes on to tell us there that all these, though commended through their faith, are yet to receive their final reward. Why is it important, brethren, that we should be reading these biographies, that we should be deliberate Bible students who are studying the Bible, that we should be as individuals who are soaking ourselves into these truths? Well, the reason is quite simple. Let me give you the fact that we are in a world of temptation and trials. Mark that down. We are in a world of temptations and trials. These individuals that are being talked about here, they went through real life temptation give you one obvious one that is spoken about here, and it is Moses. We are being told that he had the opportunity to abandon the people of Israel for the sake of the pleasures that you get from living in a palace. And in this particular case, it would have been the palace that was of the, the greatest potentate, pharaoh in that particular age. But he considered suffering for the sake of Christ to be of better worth. Temptations did not die. They did not end with Moses. They continue today. They are with you seven days a week in your workplace, in your school, in your home, when all the lights have been switched off and you are alone on your bed at night, processing thoughts, Satan, the world, and your own fallen nature, these are there with you. And these days, these gadgets are a means of temptation too. Because it doesn't matter what time of the night it might be. Individuals send messages, enticing messages, suggestive messages. 
And though you are with other people in the home, you can be receiving those messages alone. And then the following day, you go on to do that which messes you up. And then may I also repeat the issue of trials. I think it was uh, one of the postings I read about uh, friends in Afghanistan and the way in which they are being slaughtered. Those are real trials, friends. Real trials. Slaughtered for their faith. A month or so ago, they never knew how the tables would turn. And then now, they are hunted like wild animals. They've had to abandon homes altogether. The only thing they have is the bag and the clothes on their back. A small bag that they are carrying on their back to escape for dear life's sake. Others have not had that opportunity. And they have had to be killed. Trials. Trials, trials. So what we are reading in this Bible is real life. And each one of you is in real warfare. You come to Christ, you become a marked man and a marked woman. And there is the painful reality of some people failing. Let's quickly go to chapter 10, which we already read. Chapter 10. We read, I think it was last week in our regular Bible reading, Hebrews 10, verse 32 down to verse 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now listen to this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This throwing away your confidence is what I'm talking about here. This reality that some failed along the way and you have come to know them. They started well. But they've since, due to either trial or temptation, abandoned the ways of righteousness. We are told there, verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, there it is again, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Finally, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, that is what chapter 11 is about, and preserve their soul. The painful fact that some give up. You remember Job, after the first round of trials, when he lost all his kids, and then came the time that he lost his health, how his wife, his very wife, came to say to him, why are you hanging on? Curse God and die. In other words, give it all up. Shrink back. Forget it. 
Or, as the Apostle Paul in Galatians puts it, Galatians 5 verse 7, you know that Galatians is the one letter that Paul wrote literally with blood oozing out of him. And this is what he says in verse 7 of chapter 5, Galatians. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's the question. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I've been a Christian now for slightly over 40 years, 42 to be precise. And I know friend after friend that we began this journey with who have given up along the way, given up. And there have been occasions when it's not just out there, but it's been at KBC itself. When I've gone to follow up a person who's wondering, I've spoken to them, spoken to them. And they've made it very clear to me they are continuing. They leave, get into my car, and just break down and start crying. Just start crying. Start asking myself the question, what am I doing? What am I doing? If individuals will, will want sin more than righteousness, what's the point of preaching and preaching and preaching and people still go that way. It's painful. It is. But the journey must still go on. It was the one thing that the Apostle Paul feared the most about his own life and ministry. And hence he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you could turn with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. Let me begin from verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. In other words, look at your Christian life like a race. Aim for excellence in all that you are doing. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wrath, but we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Verse 27. But I discipline my body. In other words, self-control. Keeping it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in the midst of the scriptures, yes, you have those who have persevered, who are real witnesses of the faithfulness of God. But sadly, you also have the souls, the soul of the Old Testament I'm talking about, who made blunderous decisions and their end was a tragedy. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So what should you do in the light of these two realities? Individuals who make up the whole of fame and then those who do not. The duty is in our text. And I want each one of us, brethren, to take this seriously. To take this seriously. Oh, how I would love that all the disciplinary cases we've ever had are all in the past. That as we are going forward now, it is just seeing children of God 
who are achieving exploits for God. But there's only one way that can happen, and it is this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the rest that is set before us. Brethren, each one of us has the task of handling sin as it is beginning to suggest itself in us. Nobody can do it for you. Nobody. It is you that must do it. And I love the way in which he uses the picture of a person who is running the Olympics when he says, laying aside every weight. A person who is running, say, the, the marathon race, you can see how they forgo so many other things in the training, they forgo so many other things in the actual race. They forgo all that. They are on their barest minimum. If it wasn't for hiding their nakedness, they would be running in their birthday suits. Trust me. It is a laying aside of every weight, every weight. And that's something we need to learn. It is to ask ourselves the question, this thing that I am throwing into my life, how does it help me in either the cultural mandate or the Great Commission? Because that's what life on earth is. This thing that I am hanging on to or bringing in, how does it glorify God in my life? How? If we could only learn to do that, because the world will want to fill our lives with so many things under the name of pleasure and living and, and progress and whatever else it might be. And in the end, they are just extra weights, extra weights that take us away from fellowship with believers. They take us away from Bible reading. They take us away from church services. They take us away from prayer times. They take us away from so many things that ought to be occupying us, such as Christian service, serving the Lord. Yes, and I don't just mean in the church, and I don't just mean evangelistically, but even in the workplace, but it is serving the Lord. They take us away from all that. They are weights, weights. And in the end, our lives count for nothing, nothing. And then the devil comes in for the kill, and we are already too weak to resist. Lay aside every weight. Not some weights, but every weight. And he's not yet talking about sin here. He's talking in picture form of those things that retard us from real achievement. And then he adds sin. And sin which clings so closely. All of us, have besetting sins, temptations that are peculiarly ours. It's our responsibility as individuals to get rid of those sins, those small sins that are peculiarly our temptations. Deal with them before they deal with you. Brethren, we're not always together. 
And therefore, you can't expect that the Christians around you are the ones who will be constantly coming in and, and stopping what's going on and stopping what... We're not all the time together. And therefore, it's our responsibility. You've learned the truth. Even today, you are learning the truth. Well, it's you to pluck out that eye that causes you to sin. It is you to chop that arm that is causing you to sin. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's a sacrifice. Yes, but it's for your own soul. Do it. And if it means cutting off some people on your phone, do it. Do it. No, he is just a friend. No, she's just a friend. You know that this is beyond just, just, just. Block that number. For dear life's sake, block it. So that you don't mess up. Your brothers and sisters are not going to come and do it for you. They will not be inspecting your cell phone for you. You are an adult. They can't. You've got a soul to deliver. You've got a soul to save. You've got a judgment day that is coming upon which everything will hang for all eternity. Deal with those temptations now, those sins that easily entangle you. Do a thorough job now so that you may run with endurance the race set before you. The Apostle Paul has in mind here not a 100-meter dash. A 100-meter dash is easy. We can all run. Just that we can't all win, but we can all run. It's the marathon. It is that endurance race that makes you go up hills, jump over streams, get over one or two hurdles, and just keep going and going and going. That's what he has in mind here. And in that sense, the race that is marked out for you is not the race that's marked out for me. The rest that's marked out for you is not the rest that is marked out for your brother or sister there. We all have different races. First of all, there is just the fact that males have peculiar temptations, females have peculiar temptations. Already there's a difference. There are also temptations that you have as young people, teenagers, that people later on in life don't have. There are temptations that are peculiar for young adults that, again, people in later life don't have. There are temptations that are peculiar to what is called midlife. It's called midlife crisis. Those are also their temptations that, again, either the younger or the older don't have. In this journey set out for you, there will be temptations coming, trials coming as that race continues. May I also add that there are temptations that go with the different careers we pick up. Those are marked out for you. Not all of you go through the temptations of a pastor. In a sense, I'm preserved from some of the temptations you have. You're also preserved from temptations that I have. Each one of us has a race marked out for us in our various careers. The temptations that you have by virtue of the person you have married, they will be your peculiar temptations, which none of your friends have because they haven't married your spouse. So you have your own temptations in that path that you have taken. The rest that God himself has set out for you. You must endure in it. There are temptations that 
individuals who've lost their parents and they're still young, they have to go through temptations that they have to face when they are widows or widowers, when they've lost their spouses. Again, those are genuine, real temptations that are in their path. And the rest has not yet finished. They must still continue. There are temptations that are ours because we have children and they are now teenagers. Eh? Parents of teenagers, you will say amen, I know, in your hearts. You might not want to say it publicly because the teenager will be upset with you at home. And then there are temptations because we don't have children. Even that has its own temptations. There is a race that's marked out for you. And again, we will not be there with you. Your elders cannot be there with you 24 hours. They can't. We close in prayer right now or soon after this, and we go our separate ways, and trust me, you go to your trials. We need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And even just in the, the chemistry that God has made us with, there are some of us perhaps who can't remember the last time we lay on a hospital bed. There are others of us who cannot remember the last time we did not lie in a hospital bed. Again, it's the peculiar trials that he has put in our path. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, that's the plea. I know, you know, the problem with church is we only see one another like this on Sunday when we are all in our Sunday best and the cars are driving in, powerful cars for that matter, are driving in and everybody who's coming out is smiling. You know what that says to you? It looks like I'm the only one who's really suffering. Look at them. Look at them. Well, don't look at them. Look at me. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Those same individuals, if they had a way, they would trade in their bosses at work for other ones. May I even make it harder? They can trade in their spouses for others. Don't believe it. We all have a race that is marked out for us. It has its streams, it has its rivers, it has its hills, it has its mountains, and so on. We all do. All I'm pleading is this, that by the time you are in that coffin, may we be able to say, he ran his race. Well, she ran her race and finished well. Let me hurry on. Time is not with me. How? That's what we end with now. How? By looking at the example of Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and notice, who for the joy that was set before him. That's the key. In other words, when Jesus Christ was undergoing all the suffering, which we mentioned here, endured the cross, despising the shame and so on, when he was undergoing all that suffering, he fixed his gaze on the well done after the grave. The well done after the grave. That's what he fixed his eyes on. And that put still into his being so that he could endure the pain 
excruciating pain of the cross. He could endure the mocking that he was going to undergo there. He had the power to just jump off that cross and destroy all those who were in front of him like some kind of uh, uh, Marvel hero, superhero that we keep watching on these movies. He had the power to do that in real life, but he hung there. Why? It was the race marked out for him. And he had his eyes on that final glory. Oh, brethren, let's do that. There's so much of the music of the world that makes us think that this is it, this is it, that tempts us to sacrifice our souls, our souls for momentary gain. There's so much that says to us, you can escape losing your job. You can get a new job if you can only compromise and so forth. There's a lot that speaks like that to us. The wriggling worm in the water that makes you want to bite, not knowing that there's a hook inside. And the next moment, your bowels are being ripped out and you are in a frying pan, dead. There's a lot. If only we can learn to fix our eyes on Jesus as our example, to read and read and read of him so that we can have still put into our beings so that even when we are apart during the week, wherever we are, individuals meeting us will be wondering, what kind of church do these people come from? Because you cannot miss their determination. You cannot miss their heavenly-mindedness. You cannot miss the fact that they know what life is all about from the scriptures, and they are willing to be bypassed by so much that the world calls good or great, if only they might finish well. They might finish well. Brethren, that's my plea. My time is up. This is not about us as a church together. This is about you. This is about you. What is it that you represent by the time your own life is coming to an end? What will you represent? Those who by faith conquered kingdoms? Or will you represent those that will leave us with pain? Will you add to that list that makes me feel I wish I resigned long ago? What on earth am I doing here? It depends on what we've learned here. It does. And nobody can do this for you. You are the one who knows your own life. You are the one who knows what is happening out there. I'm only pleading with you. Out of genuine love, remember Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. When you are saying to yourself, no, me, what I'm going through, nobody is going through this, what and what and so on, I'm saying to you, read your Bible. What do you mean nobody else is going through this? Individuals in the very book in front of you have gone things 10,000 times worse than this. As it goes on to say later on, consider him who endured 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Come on! That's my plea. Let's read our Bibles with genuineness. Number two, let's throw away every suggestion of sin that is beginning to creep into our lives. It's not your friend. The world is not a friend to the grace of God. Your fallen nature is not your friend. Don't feed it on the filth that is there so much in the public media and social media. Don't. Satan is not your friend when he's promising you bow down to me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Don't. He's not your friend. Jesus alone is. And that's the third and last. Look to him. Look to his example. Follow in his footsteps. And may we meet finally on the judgment day as fellow victors. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the friends that have just recently left us. We, we bemoan the fact that they've left us. They meant so much to us. And for our last two sisters, just in the last one month, who've had to, to leave their children behind, whose fathers have long gone from this sphere of service. And therefore, they are orphans. We feel the pain. Oh God, knowing how disorienting it must be to them. But we thank you for their lives. We thank you for what they were, especially in later years, for the testimony that they were, for the way in which they ran their race. Oh God, may that be duplicated over and over and over again, whether it's COVID, whether it's road accidents, whether it's other illnesses, whatever it is that you have written in your book to take us from this fear to the next, may we be gathered around such coffins with a sense of victory that our brother, our sister, finished well, oh God most high, listen, heed this prayer, which is offered in the name of Christ, who died for each one of us and gave us his spirit to enable us, O oh Lord, to finish well. In his name we pray, amen.